0: The Cal Halbert Podcast Hello friends, thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast My guest this week is Mr Simon Donald We best know Simon as a stand-up comedian and one of the co-creators of the Viz comics He's a very, very funny man, he's a very good friend of mine And I uh, don't want to brag, but uh, play football with him Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, I like to call him Donaldinho Oh yeah Absolutely. Right. Here we go, my friends. I hope you enjoy my chat with Simon Donald. <laughs> the Cal Halbert Podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to say on the show today, the Cal Halbert Podcast, I've got the one, the only, the stupendous, the hilarious Mr. Simon Donald. Hi, Simon. Hello. How are you? I'm very good, mate. Very, very good. How are things?
1: Uh, all right. Um, You've um you've interrupted me whilst I was cleaning our new car.
0: <laughs> Exciting. What what new car have you got?
1: Oh you wouldn't have heard of such things. It's uh <laughs> well I don't it's it's an Italian model. Uh it's called the Fiat Panda. Oh, have okay. you heard of it? I
0: have yeah. heard of a Fiat Panda, I think. I couldn't tell you what it looks like, but yes. I have heard of it.
1: It's a little car with four <laughs> I went in the showroom showroom, and the uh, salesman showed me a hatchback. I said, I prefer cars with boots. And he said, but they work better with wheels. (laughs) (laughs) As Gavin Webster would say, I wrote that bastard.
0: (laughs) Simon, me and you know each other. We play football together most weeks and stuff like that. So yeah. how has uh, lockdown been for you?
1: Well, it's been such a laugh. Cal. It's <laughs> been, I mean, but no, it's been shit. Well, I'll, um, well, as you know, I've got uh, I've got a number of uh, immune, immuno, um, health conditions. Yeah. So I was on the um, super vulnerable list, and I had to isolate for the first god knows how long, months and months. You know, couldn't eat, couldn't leave the house, really. Um, I occasionally went to the co-op, um, which was just such a laugh. You wouldn't believe it. Um, but no, yeah, so that was that was fairly shy. But then, because obviously I was on that list, I got the jabs really early, you know? Yeah. So then I was able to get out and about a bit more. But, I mean, to be honest, at first, the, the worst aspect of it was the, the, the homeschooling thing, because... You know we've got two girls um who you know they're sort of young enough to be um really dependent on all of their group of friends and so on who straight away they were missing out on um i mean obviously the internet helps a bit you know they can yeah. sort of do zoom and things like that but um but then also they're sort of they're they're old enough to have to do lots of school work and um, but young enough and naive enough to just want to play all the time yeah. and distract. <laughs> each other and, you know, has, life bloody should be, you know. But yeah. um, it is difficult, yeah, so isn't
0: it? Was... I've been—I don't have any children, so I've been very lucky in that I've managed to miss the homeschooling thing. Um, yeah. But I—I I don't think I'd be a terrible teacher. I know I'd be a terrible teacher, and it must be even worse having to flip between parent mode and teacher mode, and then also well, not just don't... go. Ah, oh, sod it. Let's just play Monopoly or something.
1: (laughs) Well, you sort of accidentally make a really good point there, right? Which is that, you know, the idea that there should be a, um, a flip between being a parent and being a teacher, that's kind of the, the established understanding of it, isn't it? You know, but I don't know if you've heard about this business. Is it Iceland? It's one of the, one of the Scandinavian countries, anyway. They they were one of the worst performing schools in um, countries for schooling in either in Europe or possibly in you know the, the the civilized world for want of a better word, the first world. Um and what they did was the they in order to attempt to correct this, they um first thing they did was they I think they made school only three days a week and right. then only half days or something. And um, they have rocketed to like almost like number one or whatever. They've gone, they've gone from one end of the scale to the other. Really? Wow. And the guy wow. in charge was interviewed and he was saying, well, you know, somebody said, well, what do you expect children to do? You know, if they're not at school in the afternoon, he says, well, they can go and climb a tree, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, and, And he said, when they said, well, what use is there in that? And he says, well, firstly, you'll learn a number of things. And they said, well, like what? And he said, well, the first one you will learn is how to climb a tree. (laughs) The second thing that you'll learn is what things live in trees. And, you know, like how trees function, basically, you know, that, uh, you know, the older, stronger growth is fatter and heavier towards the bottom and you're just like all of the all those things about nature that you take in you know and it's not just nature it's it's things that would otherwise be categorized as physics and things like that all of that stuff you you learn by investigation
0: yeah
1: and kids learn that at their best learning when they're enjoying what they're doing you know yeah, yeah absolutely and, it, and it's just a dreadful idea to you know some kids i mean you, you've met our kids that um you know one of them in particular is quite sort of uh hyperactive and um to to shut kids like that in a room and just get them to to write in books all day long is it's not productive you know it's it's not um doesn't work. Yeah,
0: it, it it really doesn't work and stuff. And and I look back at my schooling and I'm not saying I was a brilliant student, and I'm not saying I was a terrible one. I was probably mid-range. Do you know what I mean? That's that's where yeah. I was. It was nothing particularly hated anything with long amounts of writing. Hated it. Oh, Absolutely yeah. despised it. Yeah, yeah. So like um any English lesson, I would do as little as possible as I could because I hated it. And now ironically as a stand up and and yourself, we write as a job, and I despised yeah. anything to do with writing, however, history, which also had loads of writing, um I was okay with because I found it hugely interesting. We were constantly watching different documentaries, looking at different artifacts or whatever it is, shoes that would come from a concentration camp in Germany and stuff, and you yeah. look and you find out the story behind these different pieces of. Of, of history yeah. um and that i could completely get on board with but when i have to write a story or write a play i, I couldn't be asked with it it was just
1: well one of, one of the things that alarmed me during that um homeschooling part of lockdown was the um the history that the the girls were getting was archaic in terms of like so they were studying world war 2 and it was like you know Hitler um, recaptured the Sudetenland on such and such a date. And then the invasion of Poland happened on such and such a, and it was all just bloody lists of figures and yeah. dates and all this shit, you know? Yeah. And I just thought, where is the fun in that for kids? Yeah. So what I did was I just said, "Oh, saw this for a game of soldiers. If, if they want to learn about World War II, we went for a bike ride. I took them up to... Um, the terraces up near where Heaton Station used to be, and um, showed them the replacement flats that replaced all the houses that got bombed, and then told them the stories of the bomb, then told them the stories of the, the nights of the bombings. Came home, searched on the internet, found the photographs of what the houses used to look like, you know, and then did some investigation around where we live and found out that our house. Um, the name of our street is the name of a house that stood on this site, which was bombed during World War II. Wow. And the same night they hit the, the people's theatre and the corner house. And, um, and you know, there was a guy climbed up on the roof of the corner house and kicked an incendiary <laughs> off the roof before it um, set fire to the building. And, it, yeah. you know, and that was like, they could really get excited about that until they yeah. sat down and wrote this great piece all about, she imagined that she was this guy living in the house that got bombed, you know. Oh, and fantastic. And that's how to engage with kids is to make it relevant or at least yeah. make it exciting. I've got a friend called Big Pete who's a and that's not his real name. Um parents <laughs> um, yeah, can be cruel. But he is um he his job was as a special teacher, right? And yeah. and he dealt with the usually with the kids who had been um, taken out, you know, what used to be called the withdrawal units. Yeah. Uh, That that was what he sort of operated. And and then he got jobs going into classes where they'd had disruption problems and so on. And he went in to to kind of sort it out. And it was only at the stage where they got this desperate that they couldn't sort anything out, that they got somebody in like him. And because it was at that stage, he was allowed to be a little more flexible. Yeah. And so he went into this classroom, and he's he's trying to teach this group of charvers basically about um, the English Civil War, you know. And it's an absolutely hopeless case, or so you would think, (laughs) right? And they're not allowed to have their phones in school and all this, or they've got it's all got to be switched off. So Big Pete goes in, and he says, "Right, English Civil War." Get your phones out. Switch your phones on. Get on Google. He says, "You find me the most awful way to die in the English Civil War." Right? <laughs> and obviously they're all going mad, you know. And then what happens is, like, a, a deputy head walks past and see that sees that not only are the kids using their phones, which is against school rules, but also Big Pete isn't using a PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, they, and they say they pull him up for it and they say what's this all about you know this is terrible it's against regulations you know and he says i fucking got the kids engaged you yeah. know the kids were thinking about the subject that we're trying to teach them but uh, that was an irrelevance to them
0: yeah, yeah. i think it's, it is weird because i look back and i absolutely despised the likes of geography hated it I thought it was yeah. rubbish but I love geography now. I love looking at maps and looking at flags and looking at different yeah. agricultural things. And if I look back, it's because my teacher was shit. He'd just yeah. read, he'd read a page out of a textbook, tell us to answer the questions. If we were lucky, yeah. we'd get a printout. Do you know what I mean? That's all, that's all we'd have. And he you... no wonder I hated it.
1: Have you ever seen that TED talk that I always recommend to everybody called How Not To Be Ignorant About The World? No, no, no!
0: How not to be ignorant absolute, about the world? I'm
1: going to write it absolutely down. Absolutely brilliant. Now, the the gist of it is it's it, by two Scandinavian professors, one of whom is is dead now, but they were. Um, I mean, the the the, the older guy, ab, absolute genius. And when I say genius, uh, I mean by that somebody who Schopenhauer's definition of genius was talent hits a target nobody else can hit genius hits a target nobody else can see so basically to just have an idea that nobody's had before that's really what Schopenhauer's definition of genius is anyway and this guy this professor whose name escapes me he points out that there's three things that make us ignorant about the world the first one is where we come from so it's your environment um because it's not reflective of the world it's only reflective of your immediate environment Yeah, the second one is education because school you're being taught by people who went through the education system a very long time ago Mm -hmm. themselves and they're teaching you using books and those books basically a, a textbook is out of date before it's printed because the world is forever changing and adapting and and the third one and this is the most alarming one, is news media. And the reason why the news gives us an artificial understanding of the world is because the news, by its nature, refers only to things that are unusual. It doesn't talk about things that are the everyday, the normal, and so on.
0: Yeah.
1: But to give some examples, uh, you know, y- you ask an audience, are, are there as a rule, more conflicts in the world now than there were, say, 30 years ago. And as a rule, people think, yeah, there's all, you know, this has kicked off in Syria and then Afghanistan is ongoing and there's all these, you know, you hear about all of these wars all the time. Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is that in the 1960s, there were about 220, I think, conflicts around the world. There's now about 60. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a hell of a lot less than there used to be.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's the same for uh, how many women aged 30 had full-time education up to the age of 15 or whatever. And, you know, if you're given a percentage, is it is it 90%? Is it 30%? Is it 15%? Loads of people all go for the, the lower numbers, you know? Yeah. And of course, the truth of the matter is that the world is forever getting better.
0: Yeah.
1: But the news doesn't reflect on that because the the it's not a news story, you know, it's not yeah. it, it it isn't something that's having an impact. In this moment, it's something yeah. that just happens a little bit at a time, you know, over a period of time.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit that, that they can't spin it to be scaremongering or yeah. they can't have goodies or baddies in it. They, they, they Yeah, they, they need to have that sort of thing, don't they? And it, it's interesting, and if actually. You watch... Sorry, carry Sorry. on.
1: If you, if you watch that TED talk, you'll see that what he asks his audience, they all have keypads, and he asks his audience a lot of questions and they have to answer. And he points out straight away that a lot of them have answered uh, the uh, answered the question slightly worse than chimpanzees <laughs> because, so basically he's got a random the random factor of chimpanzees which is 50-50 you know like they will just they will just press any button you know so it's just, they, they they so that the, people do as a rule generally worse than completely random yeah and that goes to show how skewed people's understanding of the world is. And, but the most alarming one is his son, the younger one, said to him, you should take this lecture and do it in front of um, journalists, you know, and see how journalists do. And journalists do worse than the public. <laughs> so the, public did, the public did worse than chimps. And journalists do worse than the public, <laughs> and the worst results of all were American journalists. And wow. American journalists—if you've never been to the states, you know—you'll know how insular the states is, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it's—it's it's really alarming. But he says, you know, there are ways of of learning not to have these automated, ignorant thoughts, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that's how the the lecture goes on to sort of say, look, you know, if somebody asks you a question and you have to sort of guess and answer there are certain rules that you should try and follow you know yeah
0: it's interesting you say about it's interesting you say about the teachers saying that they went through the school system a long time ago and the the books are out of date when they've been printed and stuff I remember having to go back to one of my old schools to give a talk about being a full-time performer and things like that and how it's completely different to anything that you're taught about and stuff like that And uh, it may come as a surprise, some, and I was never asked back. Uh, But I said, I said them. I said, if you want to know about life, I said, ask your parents. I said, don't take any advice whatsoever from your teachers because they know (laughs) nothing. I I and like you could just see these teachers just sat there getting a bit disgruntled. I said, think about it. I said, they went from school to college to university back to school i said they've done nothing I said they know nothing about life i said so just ignore them completely so yeah i've never been back
1: but uh, <laughs> we... <laughs> i'll tell you what i went i went for a sandwich in a shop in jesmond once um with me mate uh me mate hugh who who lives in italy now and uh he um he was, is an electronic engineer and um the uh we bumped into one of our old school teachers in the queue for sandwiches, right? And she says, oh, Simon, to me, you know, Simon, Simon, you've done so well. You've done so well, you know. And uh, he says, hey, hey. He says, what about me? He says, uh, I've got a PhD in electronic engineering. I just won an award at uh, Newcastle, uh, at Northumbria University for, uh, he says, and that's despite, you know, being dyslexic. and uh, And she went, Oh, yes, dyslexic, yes. I like to call that lazy children. Like, <laughs> honestly, this was in like 2000 or thereabouts. I mean, you know, like when people should really have known better. So anyway, he was seething, you know. Yeah, yeah. Understandably so, as well. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he got invited to the school <laughs> to, to, to do a guest <laughs> lecture, right? And uh, so he did his lecture all on electronics and that, and he got to the end and he says, now, children, um, anybody here still taught by um, Mrs. MacDonald? And uh, a few kids put their hands up and he went, oh, excellent. Right. He says, would you tell her when you see her that Hugh Evans came in to do a lecture and he's he would just like to point out that she has put on a lot of weight. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot, of, a lot of weight. And uh, the fucking teacher who was in the corner of the room went, whoa, 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 and took him outside and said, you cannot say that, you can't say that. And he just told her the story and she went, "Ah." Oh, right.
0: <laughs> it, there must be teachers that are just dinosaurs aren't they that even the new teachers go oh god can't wait for they just <laughs> by, they're just waiting for their retirement money now they've had enough <laughs> <laughs> Well Simon we best know you as a stand-up comic and one of the co-creators of the Viz comics was that something you'd always wanted to do
1: Well as a kid um I had t- two great passions I think and that was uh drawing and comedy um I was one of these uh precocious little bastards who you know <laughs> sort of went around doing voices and I mean I don't know if you know anything about that sort of thing <laughs> um, you know, so when I was a kid I used to um when my dad had friends round. my dad would say oh Simon come and do your impressions. Yeah, so you used to do Tommy Cooper and yeah. Jimmy Savile and, um, you know, all the, 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 um, the big stars
0: of the, of the 70s, 80s sort of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, Eddie Waring. Uh, I don't know if you remember Eddie Waring <laughs> um So I, I used to, and I used to, do, but my dad didn't like us to do that. <laughs> that, we are nationwide, but um, <laughs> my dad didn't like us doing that one. But but anyway, um, I used to do all of that. But I loved comics. I was I was like sort of uh, when my dad was um he was a travelling salesman. My dad he sold um uh, uh, batteries, uh, ever ready batteries, and then later uh, S O paraffin, boom 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 S O blue. <laughs> And um, he used to to take me on when, during the summer when I was off school, he would sometimes take me to work and used to take me around all of his his customers. And there was a a comic shop in Sunderland. Newcastle didn't have a comic shop. So he worked all over the Northeast, my dad. And um, so he used to take me to this comic shop in Sunderland and it was just, it was like a dream, you know, this shop that only had comics. Like, so like Gene um, wilder
0: and willie wonka as you go into that room you're like come with yeah, yeah, me yeah. and
1: you'll be <laughs> That's right. Yeah. it was brilliant and so i love comics and i wanted to draw comics that was from from when i was i guess nine or ten or something and um and then when i got to about 12 i joined the people's theater mm-hmm. um on Saturday afternoons used to do um, what nowadays they would call performing arts classes. But um, actually it wasn't so much that, to be honest, it was, it was, it was more theater, it was drama. It was, there wasn't the singing and dancing, you know, that you were, you get in um, kids drama classes nowadays or performing arts classes, should I say. But um, um, so I, I started then to, to lean very much towards performance. You know, like I said, I sort of entertained my dad's friends and I used to do it at school and used to recite sort of Monty Python sketches to my friends at school. And then with this guy, um, Gordon, who I was at school with, who's still uh, he's still a bigwig in, th- in theatre now, although he, he's in Denmark now, but he's in County Durham for many years, had a, a theatre in there. Uh, in County Durham but um so me and Gordon used to write and perform little things together um we we did in a an we had an English teacher called Mrs Guidas who um did drama which was quite unusual at our school she yeah. she asked permission to to do drama classes and and That's me exactly and Gordon better. thrived on it you know and we performed, we performed. I think three or four Monty Python sketches for the for the class. We you know rehearsed them all and did them in costume and all the rest of it. And then um, we wrote one of our own and put it in. And it was one of those, you know, like the the classic um, Monty Python sketches, the sort of Palin Cleese ones, where you know, like the cheese shop and the parrot. Yeah. shop where, where it's the, the, the pet shop where it's all it's quite predictable the way it runs and you just use a Thessaurus and <laughs> well we wrote one of those and it was a I remember it now it was it was about a, a guy trying to buy tickets to Coventry <laughs>
0: <laughs> Real, it's funny isn't it how co- comics minds work yeah coventry's a funny place isn't it you just go yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go to coventry do you know
1: I mean? it's and <laughs> um, we we sort of did we sneaked it in and then we did a reveal at the end where we told her that we'd written one of the sketches and she had to guess which one it was and she couldn't of the three or four that we did she didn't know which one we'd written so we considered that was was great you absolutely. know absolutely So I'm at that age, I'm like 14, 15, and um, I really fancy a career. I mean, you know, sort of, The Monty Python were like my heroes, you know, and I wanted to, that was really what I wanted to do, was like a comedy sketch show. And then my brother, who'd been funny and around using my dad's SO Blue invoice pads, as, uh, to you know, using the blank side to make little comic books to pass around his friends at school. Yeah. Um, he had let, he four years older than me, Chris, and he'd left school by this time and got a job working at the ministry. And he used his wages from the ministry to fund a little project of putting a, a real comic together um he'd done a couple of previous things with his friend jim um which were basically like a4 photocopy sheets of sketches you know yeah uh, co- uh, you know comics cartoon sort of strips that they'd made up and um they had had a little bit of success selling them they didn't make any money they lost money on the deal but was um photocopies of
0: his as well at that point well
1: that, no the first one was called the daily pie and the second one was called Arnold the Magazine. And you do meet a few people around Newcastle nowadays who will talk about when they, they remember when Viz was a photocopied sheet. Yeah. Um, and if if they're genuine recollections, then that's actually what they're talking about. The pre-viz things weren't weren't called Viz. Although they did actually I, I think no, I've imagined that. I was going to say, I think, it may have, I think it may have said in the corner, published by Viz Comics, but I think that was actually the first issue of Viz that said that. Because even the first issue of Viz, it was called the Bumper Monster Christmas Special. Yeah. And it just said in the corner, published by Viz Comics. Um, But so when Chris was putting that together with his friend Jim, Jim Brownlow, um, he asked me if I wanted to contribute. and like I say, I, I felt at this time that I'd sort of grown out of comics yeah um, and I was now into this performance thing and the drama and the writing and um, but it was a fantastic opportunity you know I thought the well it was something that I've sort of trained for, I prepared myself for for years, so I could definitely do it. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to to, to, to do so. I said, what do you want me to draw? And he says, oh, well, just make something up, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And I, and I thought, eh, how, how can I make something up? Well, of course, I didn't realise it, but, but I'd already been writing comedy stuff. I'd been, you know, doing the stuff with Gordon. And, of
0: course, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, so I just, um, you know, I did this first, my, the first thing I ever did was um, just a sort of a one-strip uh, story story like a, a row of three or four panels um in which somebody um uh, goes to eat some cakes around at mr kipling's house and is then violently sick i mean it was <laughs> kind of as, as simple as that you know yeah. but looking back on it you know um uh, thinking that i was only uh, uh 15 years old at the time you know it's uh i'm still pretty um, impressed that I managed to. Well, we all that we we were all so young. Yeah, um, it's amazing. It, it
0: must have been difficult because if if Chris said to you just make something up, and as you say, you're only fifteen, it must be so difficult to come up with your own character without going, oh shit, that's just Mickey Mouse or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, you yeah. W- without subconsciously copying stuff that you've already seen.
1: Yeah, I th- I well, actually, you touched on something there. Um, which is kind of exactly how you do do these sort of things, which is um, you do look at the things that you read yeah. um, and you do use them. And I think this is the same with all of us, with comedians, with all artists, really, with, with musicians. You look at the people who have, um, whose music or whose work you've really loved, and you basically you copy what they do yeah but it isn't what they do it's what you do because without even realizing it you've put your own spin on it because yeah. it's you know and and that that's basically how all all such things work isn't it you it, know
0: it's it's similar to a cover song isn't it you you yeah. you're going to make it your own but ultimately there's still elements yeah. of the original in there
1: yeah, and that's and that's pretty much exactly well, that's how musicians work, isn't it? They they begin by copying somebody else's song. They'll yeah. they'll hear a song, they'll learn it, they'll learn to play it, and then they'll go, oh right, so you know that's those chords, and all you've got to do is mix it up, you can put them in a different order, yeah, and, yeah. oh right, all of a sudden you've got a song, and and so so that's kind of how it worked. And of course, what what we did with Viz because it was. It was parody, effectively. A lot of it was parody. So, you know, you you were openly taking the piss out of other styles of work. <laughs> and, um, you know, Jim, Jim began, um, I, I really admired Jim because he had a very natural style of drawing. But he read sort of Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and Fat Freddy's Cat and all that stuff. But despite reading it, he and the rest of us were all deeply cynical about everything, you know? <laughs> so, he, he, was, he was able... I don't know where that came from. I mean, my dad was kind of like that, but we just really... Our natural position was to just take the piss out of everything, you yeah. know? So, despite him reading these these comics and loving the artists and so on, he produced a couple of things. There was, there was one thing in the first issue of his called Chester and the Man. Right. And it was just... Uh, It was just a piece of fucking not hippie nonsense, you know, and uh, it was just a few frames, but it was it had me in stitches, you know, and um, because I hated those comics. He he, he brought those comics to our house and showed us them. And I just it was interesting. They were the first comics that I'd seen that were specifically for adults. Right. And that was interesting because I didn't realise such things existed, um, but I really didn't like them. It was it did strike me as being a load of hippie bollocks. And then he came up with this script <laughs> which basically said all of these comics. It, I mean, in, in three or four frames, he said all of that stuff is shit. You know, <laughs> and, and that was really the ethic. You know, it was it, it was a very punky thing, and that was where we began. Selling Viz. Viz first went on sale um, at pump gigs uh, on yeah. Gosforth High Street. The, the, there's a big pub on Gosforth High Street called um, the Gosforth Hotel, and they have a function room upstairs. You may have done gigs there. I've, I've done gigs. In Do there. You know, I,
0: I probably have. I probably have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I don't think it's had a, it hasn't had a, it's never had a regular comedy gig, but I did intend to start one there at one time. But then, you know, various other things have come along in the meantime, you know, the stand opened and then I was sort of thinking of doing uh, a, a show that was something maybe different, because obviously I've got a monthly show at the stand with my brother, but maybe put on something else monthly and that would be a good place to do it. And then Bobbix opened and they offered us a slot, you know, and it's, it's and it's like, um, although obviously with the pandemic and everything, that's never happened yet, but, yeah. um, you know, so... Anyway, this this pub, it's got a good function room upstairs. And uh, so these bands used to play there in the 70s. Um, and it was it, it, the, the room, <laughs> the room where Viz was first sold is now called the Gordon Sumner Suite. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking room above a pub, you know. Um, but I, it's, I love
0: uh, I love any function room that's called a suite. I, or I love anything <laughs> like that. You just go, it's oh great! But you but you're still so, gonna call anyway. me on the turn, aren't you? That's what's gonna happen. <laughs>
1: ah! So, um, but um, yeah, so Sting played there with his band. Last wow. Exit. They they had a residency there, and he left and went to London, and then Antipop uh, came along, which was a little music promotion. Group um, that was founded very much in the sort of sort of post immediately post punk sort of era seventy eight, um, and they started putting gigs on there, and it was must have been in the summer of seventy nine. Um, yeah it was it's summer 79 chris and gordon that guy who i told you about gordon Pode, who i was writing stuff with and then did theater together he had a band called pig sanai um and they played at the Gosforth hotel and i used to appear with them as their sort of resident poet so i a bit like john cooper clark thing when the band were setting up their gear um, I would go on and do some comedy poetry, you know, yeah. and I used to sort of crack a couple of jokes and stuff as well, you know. Um, and uh, um, so so that was the summer of '79. I went to um, the Gosford Hotel for the first time. Um, probably, I think it was just with Chris, Chris and Jim, just took me to see because uh, it was because of the function room you could access it from a side street right. entrance um so that, yeah, that sort of went into an atrium and you could go straight up the stairs to the function room so it was there was loads of underage kids in there you know yeah. so I was I was 15 but I could get in and me brother could go down to the bar and buy drinks for us and that you know yeah yeah so it was it was the room was always packed as well I, I, I think the the fire capacity at the time was 90, and I think it's 70 now because regulations have gotten tightened. better. <laughs> yeah, but, but we sold, we sold uh, over 100 copies of Viz wow. uh, on the first night in there, you know. So the story is that we sold 150, that, which was the entire print run. But Chris has revealed to me since that there was actually a number of pre-sales um, <laughs> ones that get back, you know, like people had reserved them and stuff. So, yeah, yeah but yeah. on the first day, they were all sold out on the first day. But correct, me the if I'm, went...
0: correct me if I'm wrong, Simon, but for some reason, I've got something stuck in my head that the name Viz came from uh, a, a, a printer that Chris had made out of an old tile. Is that right? and he couldn't do round corners. Is that right? Is that what it was? (laughs)
1: That's a story that he tells, right? And I think he made that story up um, because he was sick of people asking him where the name Viz came from. Yeah. Um, And it is true that he made a lino print um, of the name Viz, which we used... Um, on to sort of make letterheads and things like that, you know, before, because I, I think it's something that a lot of people don't realise is printing was really expensive back then, you know, it, you know um, prohibitively expensive for most people. So you, people made their own stuff, you know, especially with this sort of punk thing going on, the idea of doing everything yourself was, was a big part of it. Although we didn't think about that at the time, we just did it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Of um, course. It's one of those things where hindsight gives you the whole story. But <laughs> when we were just kids, we were just doing this stuff, you know? Yeah. But um, yes, yeah, so we he ma- he did make this lino cut, but it's, if you, he's still got it now. And if you look at it, it says Viz, which has got a round dot above the eye. So there's a circular dot above the eye. And it also has the word comic underneath. Which is all, <laughs> so the idea that it had to be straight and that was how he came up with the name Viz is just, it, we just made it up when he was <laughs> young. Um, and um, the the idea that, that I think a lot of people seem to think that it was, we were, it was a clever use of Latin, um, meaning as is or whatever. Um, but it wasn't. We didn't realise it was a real word. And <laughs> the, the, the truth of the matter is we we just thought it sounded like a comic. Yeah. Viz sounded like the name of a comic. But what we didn't know at the time about the names of comics, especially the names of British comics, which Chris was Chris was very keen to sort of parody the British comics, you know, like to the Beano and the Dandy. Yeah. And what we didn't know... Was all of those names like dandy and beano and whizzer um and wow, uh they're all British slang, British children's slang names for good. Uh, and yeah, so a beano is something that's really good. Dandy means something that's great, you know? Yeah. And you know whizzer, I, mean, oh, I never a- thought of that, yeah. Absolutely wizard beano yeah. dandy. Yeah. You know that so um all, all of those, um, almost all of them anyway. Are, are, and are So if, if we had thought of, if, we, if we'd been aware of that, we would have used probably like a Geordie word for good, which is where when, when me and Alex set up, when we, we made the region airs, the, um, the TV show um, many years ago with Gavin Webster and Catboy, um, we called the production company Blissner because that's what we would have called... We, th- yeah, that's, That was like a play on the fact that that's what Viz should have been called. Was, yeah. It was the, you know, ah, oh, bless now, that
0: <laughs> But if we stay with names, you, you did get in trouble a couple of times with names of the annuals, didn't you? Because was there not a time where W.H. Smith wouldn't stock you because of the name of it in the window and stuff? Well... <laughs> <laughs> strap in, everybody here we right, go
1: <laughs> well, the, right, now the story the story goes that Viz, by the time we started doing annuals viz was starting to sell quite well yeah it, was, it become national the first annual wasn't an annual it was a the idea was it was a, it was a one-off reproduction of all of the sort of best parts of the first of all, all the issues of Viz that came before Viz got its national publishing contract, so when it was effectively just a sort of a DIY product still around the streets of, of Newcastle yeah. Um, yeah, and that was called The Big Hard One. And it was called The Big Hard One because it was a hardback book. And then it was later reprinted by Virgin. And those fucking idiots missed the, the joke and they printed it in softback. <laughs> And if, if we if we had a say in that, which we did with every other product that Viz ever put out, it was it it fell through a loophole. That book it's a story that's not really worth going into. It's just technical boring stuff. But um, that if we'd had a say in it, we we would have um, had a cross through the word hard and written soft, you know, in, like written in yeah. biro, you know. Did you hear, did you hear that story? Speaking of which, if we had done that, they probably would have been sent back. Uh, Smith sent back a load of Monty Python books, um, because they had fingerprints all over them. No, (laughs) it was was part of the, it was part of the design of this. (laughs) um, It it was the Monty Python brand new Papa book. Yeah. Uh, Um, yeah and it had it had like all the you had the printer's thumb prints all over the the cover and but that, it was designed
0: you know? like that it was supposed to yeah, be like yeah. That.
1: yeah yeah sent them back, yeah
0: yeah
1: um, But uh, <laughs> yeah so the, the 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 next one was called the big hard number two yeah and the the the, the characters were all queuing for a um a, a toilet, I think, on the cover of that one, because the idea is that the big hard number two would be uh, an impacted stool, if you will. <laughs> so, um, and then the next one was the pink stiff one. Um, and so the the, the the first three had the word or the hard and then became stiff. And this has all to do with the fact it's, it, it's, it's a version of the comic in a hardback form yeah um and then the next one um we were trying to think of a title that suggested that it it was the best of you know it was like a a best of compilation and we we we, we wanted um to somehow sum that up you know and um and somebody said, I, I don't remember who it was in, in the office. Somebody said, Oh, why don't we call it the dog's bollocks?
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, which was, um, an up and coming expression at the time for, for something that was good.
0: Yeah. It would have been bees' and knees everywhere until dog's bollocks, wouldn't it? That's what it would have been. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, um, they, um, The, the the conversation went round the office and we were pissing ourselves laughing. We thought what a great idea that would be, right? And and then um somebody said very sensibly, probably our Chris, um listen, Smiths aren't gonna stock it if if we call it the dog's bollocks, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: And I said, Well, they sold never mind the bollocks, didn't they? The Sex Pistols album. I yeah. mean, some shops put it in a plain bag and stuff you know but and anyway the thing was by the time the dogs bollocks came out this was selling about half a million wow or or something along those lines you know and was, the, we just
0: the point where it was out selling radio times and things
1: yeah i think we'd probably passed cosmopolitan at that time or we maybe weren't we weren't up to radio times I, th- I think we, we got to a stage, I think it was in 91, when we were outselling everything in the newsagents except Radio Times and TV Times. Wow. So, uh, and that was when Radio Times and TV Times were still unable to print each other's um, listings. Yeah. So ITV couldn't print BBC's listings and vice versa. So a lot of people bought both. Um, wow. And of course, of course, you wouldn't
0: have TV guides free in the paper at that point as well. So it was, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a few things to take into account here. This is per issue. Obviously, Radio Times was weekly and Viz was every eight weeks, but it was a per issue sale. And also Reader's Digest, I think, was technically number three, but that wasn't in newsagents. It wasn't for sale in newsagents. It was a subscription-only publication. So we our claim always was that we were the third best-selling magazine, well, we were the first best-selling magazine with the exception of TV listings in British newsagents. So, it, it, I mean, it was it's incredible. remarkable. incredible. So with we weren't quite at that point when the dog's bollocks idea came about, but we were getting there. And we just, we, anyway, we sort of said heroically um, on reflection in the sort of, once again, with the punk ethic, uh We just said, well, fuck it. If they don't sell it, they don't sell it. We didn't care. You know, we just said, let's call the book The Dog's Bollocks. And we can, if we have to, we'll just, you know, sell it out of porter cabins in Peterborough, which is, you know, how a lot of these (laughs) things work, you know. Um, And, you know, like mail order type thing. So um, anyway, we did opt to call it um, The Dog's Bollocks, thinking that Smiths probably wouldn't stock it. And then the next thing we knew, me and Thorby, one of the um, the other Viz creators, uh, who came along a, a couple of well, a few years later, um, we were standing we were standing on Newcastle Central Station, waiting to catch a train to London, in front of the Newcastle Central Station W H Smiths window display, which was all the dog's bollocks <laughs> the, the, the whole window of Smiths. And uh, we were just gobsmacked. You know, that's a moment I'll never forget in my life. It was just, it was, it was all of a sudden we were fucking calling the shots. You know yeah, what I mean?
0: Incredible.
1: Like, uh, yeah, that was that was insane. You know, and that's the sort of thing that results in me buying a Fiat Panda. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Simon, you mentioned briefly before about the where We work with Alex. Um, you were the MC of the Horse's Mouth and Macam Laugh up in the Northeast as well. But something that yeah. not a lot of people know about you as well is that you are actually a band manager as well. So I was, you yes. managed a yeah. band called the Hungover Stuntmen. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah.
0: how on earth did that come about?
1: Well, I, um, well, I was working at the time with Alex, um, and we had an office in my house in Jesmond. Have you heard of it? It's been that. And um, the the guys in the band lived down the street. They lived at the opposite end of my street. And they could be heard practising. They, they, it was a bit like they lived in, like the Beatles in Help, you know. Um, only, they only had one front door. But um, they they lived and uh, they, they, they all lived in the same house and, and practised in the, in the front room. And because of the way their house was situated on a corner the, the, and the, the practice room was on a corner, the sound could be heard in the street, but it didn't um, impact on their neighbors because yeah. uh, no, no, no neighbors' houses connected to, to that, that house uh, that corner of that house. you know so but when you were walking down to the metro station, you could hear them, you know yeah and they put a CD through me door. And I ignored it for months. You know, it it came with a funny note and the note was quite humorous. Uh, And eventually I was literally hovering over the bin and I said to Alex, hey, Alex, I should probably listen to this instead, you know, before I throw it out, just in case they're phenomenal. And I listened to it and they just were, they were, you know, an amazing sort of... um, well, I mean, the obvious reference to, to make is the Beatles, insofar as they were, you know, uh, drums, bass, two guitars and four harmony four, uh, vocals, you know? Yeah. So, um, and they were all songwriters and... Um, That's quite they were rare
0: all... as well. That's quite rare if yeah. everyone's a songwriter in there.
1: They were all tremendously talented musicians. Um, they were all good looking. I mean, you just, you couldn't make it up, really. It, it was... Um, they had everything, and um, so what I did was I put them in touch with my, the only friend who I knew who was in music management, uh, or who was in the music industry. Sorry, she wasn't in management. Um, Angie Jenkinson, who um, worked, um, she she still works uh, with Teenage Cancer Trust. Uh, she books all of the the music acts for the for the annual. Uh, Albert Hall gigs for Teenage wow. Cancer Trust. So she's got, she's, you know, she's really well connected with, um, it, particularly with two scenes, really, with um, the mod sort of electric, um, you know, sort of Britpop type scene, you know, like it's The Who, Stereophonics, Paul Weller, yeah. um, Gallagher's and so on. And also uh heavy metal scene she's she's um knows iron maiden and you know and she was a good friends with lemmy and so so anyway um she um i sent her the cd and she said she rang me up as soon as she heard it and went jesus these guys are amazing um and she took them on she took them on she took them on managing them and over a period of time, she asked me because she wasn't based in Newcastle. She was in London. She asked if I would be her sort of eyes and ears for the band in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, so I did that. And then she eventually, she started managing another band as well. And then she uh, found that she had too, she had too much on. Yeah. And I basically became the the manager for the band. So having worked with her, we were sort of co-managing for a while. I ended up I, I, well, I was working effectively. I was working as the road manager. Yeah. So I took them around. We had a little minibus, and um, you know, we went all over the UK um, doing the whole sort of rock and roll road trip thing. You know, it was um, it was great. We did it for sort of four years, and it was tremendous. Tremendous times, really. I mean, um, I'd always had a great love of music. And, um, you know, I've been in a band myself when I, when I was younger. Yeah. Um, sort of had I formed a band with some guys from school and never went very far. It was sort of a comedy band, you know. But this you know, this was like a proper band, you know, and they, and they did really well. They supported Paul Weller three times. Wow. They, uh, they played with Ocean Colour Scene and um you know the newcastle arena and the city hall and Carling academy and um you know they 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 headlined ibiza rocks they recorded an album in ibiza it all went tremendously well and um sadly for 2008 it all sort of fell apart as as these things tend to do the guys by then have been together for years and what happened was you'll remember you'll remember Anybody who lived through that period of time will remember. It was the time of the big financial crash, you know. And they had an independent deal with um, uh, the UK's biggest independent uh, record supplier, which was, um, oh, God, the name escapes me for the minute, but Pinnacle. Right. And um, they went bust. And that was the end of their sort of distribution deal. Mm-hmm. And but they could then have moved on to do different things. Uh, it was all getting a bit. T- this is at the big be- It was really at the beginning of iTunes and things like that. And it was all a bit messy. And they sort of were in two minds. They 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 couldn't make their minds up about w- what to do. Um, how to take the sort of publishing deal forwards, and um, and around that time, I got the news that my eldest brother Steve, who I lived with, was uh, terminally ill. So we were out in Ibiza at the time and uh, doing a. They were uh, they had a residency, the first uh, residency at the Ibiza Rocks Hotel when it opened in in Ibiza, and um, so we were out there and. When the guys came home from that trip, um, it just all sort of, they, they, you know, it was like I say, they couldn't quite agree on where they were going. I had to step aside because I came became the full time carer for my brother, and um, and then I tried to hook them up with another manager, um, but he ended up uh, he had another band in his sort of sights, and I think he. He got them which was his you know he didn't want to do two so it was actually i think it's sensible but um and then the band were like having come back from ibiza they were struggling financially you know and then it was like right do we now return to getting jobs part-time jobs and try to do the? you know and this was all good and then, which is
0: painful the, for any performer because you just think, yeah, I mean, yeah. Admittedly, there's a lot of us that have gone back to day jobs after the pandemic, but yeah. it's painful yeah. because it's a backward step in in your minds, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And then, what happened was, the one of the guys in the band, the sick who was the main singer, was offered a job, um, in engineering with his uh father in law, which. And it was like guaranteed good earnings and all the rest of it, you know? And he went with that. And that meant really that the, it was little chance of the back. Now they were all singers. Yeah. They had survived losing one of their, uh, you know, one of the singers in singer songwriters in the past, but they had fortunately enough, they had another guy uh, who Oxy'd worked with before, who became Martin's replacement. Yeah. Um, and he was phenomenal, you know, and the band really, if anything, they got better at that point, you know? But, you know, I mean, it wasn't like a Pete Best moment. Um, <laughs> it's it, it more like, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe George Harrison left the Beatles and Eric Clapton stepped in. It was a little bit like that, perhaps, oh, you know?
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um But yeah, I mean... Um, so that was that was really how it all came to an end. They, they're all still doing music, ironically, except James, the one the one who who left and went into engineering. Um, but um, yeah, they all they all sort of teach music and uh, idea, yeah. um, Oxy still records with bands, and you know everybody makes their own music now, don't they? Everyone's got garage oh. band, but uh, yeah. I think it's impossible. Idea. It's almost impossible to make money out of recording music nowadays yeah i think you've, it's it, it, yeah it's a
0: very, very difficult industry isn't it it's uh, as is yeah. comedy but music I, I think is next level i think but uh yeah they're
1: but- so similar the industries are they're, they're so I, w- I would say really the only real difference between music and comedy um you know setup wise you know for, for the whole way that it works is um with music there's, there's just a bit more um set up technically when you put a gig on, you know? Yeah. But apart from that, it's much the same business.
0: Simon, I've got two more questions for you. I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface, but so you'll have to come back on again in in the future. But uh, my one of my first, uh, last two questions, sorry, is what's next for you?
1: Um, well, I'm really looking forward to returning to um, doing the show with my brother, which I do at The Stand. I mean, obviously, 18 months now, that's been that's been gone. But we, we do a show called Donald Trumps. So it's the Donald brothers playing trumps with each other. So we try to outdo each other. He, he writes all of my questions, I write all of his questions, and we have no idea what they are. Yeah. So from the minute, we're, like everything that we work on before each show. It's all scripted. You know, we're writing questions. Um, we're putting slideshows together. Um, and it's very much like the creative process when we when we put Viz together. So we, but then on the night when it comes to the gig, Alfie Joey, who's the host of, of the show, he is presented with the, the package, him and him and the technician who's usually Kieran get presented with all of the package and from there on it the whole thing is improvised so it's it's it just just me and my brother just relaxing and taking the piss out of each other for <laughs> the entire evening so, so, And it's really good fun because that we, we we get to be really creative with the um you know the, the 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 stuff that we make for the show so for instance there's a there's a round where um it's um, called Beyond the Grave, and um, we ask questions. Um, so Chris is asked questions by the ghost of our Nana, for instance. <laughs> um, uh, so I have to, you know, I put together the all um, the, 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 the audio uh, of Nana asking the, the questions, you know. And he, I always do Nana, and he varies it, you know. It'll do like the ghost of Terry Hibbett and um, (laughs) various things. It's always people. It's dead people asking questions, you know. And uh, it'll be, you know, a lot of the questions are 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 quite simple, and it's it'll be like, you know, how much was a Mars bar in 1978? You know, and you know, so it's. But I really love doing that show, so I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, I'm starting up doing a chat show at um, Bobbix in yeah. Um We actually Russell. Do you know Russell, who books the gigs at um, yeah. Bobbix? He is the younger brother of Gordon, who I was talking about earlier. Oh, who that's crazy, that. crazy
0: that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So,
0: um, yeah. Your, so, what's your chat show called? Um. <laughs>
1: I remember. <laughs> that's. Do you know what? I forgot. I forgot the bloody pin number for me uh, credit card, and uh, the and the the pin number for me burglar alarm. That's what. That's that's what the pandemic's done for us all.
0: <laughs> I suppose you, you haven't had to use either of them for I eighteen months, it? Has it? <laughs> I
1: Haven't left the house for over a year, you know. So, um, but. Yeah, what did I call it in the end? I think it's called uh, Chatty Chit House. That's right. Nice. Yeah,
0: I like it. Yeah, I've got. And, I've got one final question for you, Simon. Uh, who of your celebrity showbiz friends would you like to see on this podcast?
1: Um. Oh God, that's uh, that's a good question. Um. Do you know? Uh, it's got to be Barry Cryer. Barry Cryer. Barry Barry Cryer is just because Barry Cryer is an anecdote machine. Yes, it's just absolutely brilliant. Do you know? I tell you a quick. Can I have I've got time? To yeah, absolutely,
0: before. absolutely.
1: So <laughs> how was it? Um, Leicester Comedy Festival, and I went back to the the hotel, and I saw Barry in the in the. Uh, bar, and he says, Come and join us. Uh, me, it was him and Ronnie Golden. You know, and he says, Come and come and join us. Come and join us. And uh, have you ever met Barry? When he, I, he, I've
0: met him once and not to the point where he would ever remember or recognize me again. You know, so... but
1: the thing is, it, it almost doesn't matter how long you spend with him, he just starts telling you a story. <laughs> so, um, so he he sits, he sits down <laughs> and he just said to me, Uh, Simon, uh, I said, have I ever told you the uh, the story about um, Humphrey Littleton and the prunes? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, Barry, I don't need to hear the fucking story. <laughs> I said, that's that's to start with. So he, anyway, he told me this story, and the story was basically just that Humphrey Littleton he was having breakfast with Humphrey Littleton in in a hotel once, and Humphrey Littleton prodded this prune with his spoon <laughs> and said, how on earth does one fuck up a prune? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was, so this is, we're on Simon Donald fucking uh, name drop roulette here, right? So I was in a pub with um, Michael Palin and um, and Terry Jones, bless him when, when he was still with us. And um, (laughs) the subject got around to Barry Cryer because obviously they've known Barry since, you know, the early 60s. So um, Mike says that whenever Barry Cryer rings him up, right, he says he gets a fucking notepad out and starts trying to write (laughs) down all the anecdotes. And I said, I said, but... And he says, but I never get them written down. He says, I only ever write the first few words down, you know. <laughs> and I said, listen, Mike, I said, that's often the best bit of the story. I says, if you've just written down <laughs> the story of Humphrey Littleton and the Prunes. <laughs> it's, it's fucking wonderful, isn't it?
0: Oh, it's great. He's on my <laughs> list. He's on my list. I'm,
1: I'm going to um, call Barry because, you know, for this Felton Out thing, um they're they're asking comics to interview people with an interesting northeast connection yes um well barry used to live in the summer when he was a kid he used to live on Cartington terrace in heaton with his uncle yeah Yeah. and um he he said every night he said he, he used to have to share a bed with his uncle because you know in those days not everybody nobody had you know, camp beds and all the rest of it. You know, so. But he said anyway. When his uncle used to get into bed, uh, he said every night, um his uncle would say as he climbed into bed, "Hey, Barry, son, the bloke what invented bed should have got a medal.
0: <laughs> should have got him every night without fail." <laughs> <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for coming on to the Cal Halbert Podcast.
1: That's quite all right, mate. I'll see you again very soon. I'll see you on Thursday for football. Absolutely. (laughs) See you soon, mate. That's
0: tomorrow. The Cal Halbert Podcast. And there we go, my friends. That was my chat and chin wag with Mr Simon Donald. He's a very, very funny man. And we we did play football the following day, actually. You know, when we recorded it, it was a Wednesday. Called it on a Thursday. Well, played on a Thursday. Oh, what a world. If you enjoyed the podcast, please, please, please give it a big share to all of your friends. And if you can, give us five stars. That really helps other people to find the podcast as well. If you want to support us a little bit more, you absolutely can through our Patreon page. All the details are in the description below. And I will see you next week. (laughs) The Cal Halbert Podcast. You've been listening to a Calbert Media Production.